We are picking up uh, our Read the Bible Better series today, and uh, this is this is one of the more nerdy parts of this series, so I hope you, you can kind of stick with me and st- stay with me a little bit. Um, I hope to bring out some cool things uh, that hopefully will pique your interest a little bit, but um, today we're going to talk about the structure of our Bible. Woo! Woo. Right. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> um, but it is, it is a really interesting thing to, to understand and to, to, to talk about and to study about. Uh, Kyle made a statement uh, last week, I guess it was, and um, talking about different translations, which is not something we're necessarily going to get into. Um, but he made the statement that, you know, probably none of us in this room, or let me just say this, some of you are pretty studious, so there may be one or two. Let me just ask. How many of you have ever read the foreword to your Bible? Oh, really? That many of y'all? Wow. That's impressive. Like, who the translators are, you know, where they came from, what their background is, you know, why this translation this way, et cetera, et cetera. Most people don't. I'm really super impressed with y'all. Wow, that's awesome. Great. Well, you know, that's all. It, it's... It's important to know, again, like who wants to read? We want to get into Genesis. Like we want to get into, the, into the, the stuff. But just to remind us, what we have in our Bibles is we, we have a book or a library of books, as, as Chill has got me saying, a library of books that you and I and our kids and our parents before us probably, our whole reality is built around. I know I spent a long time talking about that a few weeks ago, but I just want to come back to it and refresh us because I think that is, I think that's an incredibly powerful thing to think about. You know, there's a lot of people around the world that don't grow up with the Bible. And the truth is that their reality and the way they think about life and the way they think about themselves and the way they think about their fellow people around them in creation is can be much different than ours it we can't even imagine a reality without the bible what would what would Borgard vernon parish look like without the bible a lot, a lot less church, a lot less churches considering there's in the hundreds right for our population size what would, what would America look like without the Bible? Now, I'm not saying every, you know, every church has done everything right or America's done everything right with the Bible. That's not the point. The point is, this book has been the foundation for our nation, and it's the foundation of our local community. It is the way, as I said a couple weeks ago, it's the way that we were taught to view the world from taking things out of the Bible and applying them. It's the way that we are teaching our children. And I've been thinking about this the last year or so. It, it crops up every once in a while. It just, takes me, just blows me away. The idea that when our children are born, they're a blank slate. And, and as parents of young children, 
I don't I wonder how many how much we realize that we are actually creating our we're creating a reality for another human being as we raise them. I didn't sign up for that job. <laughs> that's really that's really heavy. We are literally creating a world, a reality, a, a, a construct for another human being. And based on the world that we create for them, especially in their earlier years, although that reality may change as they grow, as many of ours have from the way our parents were taught us, we all know that we still have a lot of mom and dad in us. I just think that's a massively heavy thing to think about. And when we're using the Bible as the, the, the fundamental text and its ideas and its ethics and its commandments and it, you know, its, its stories, when we're using this as the undergirding for the reality that we're creating, it makes it all the more important that we understand what the book is. And so things like reading the foreword and going like, who... Who translated this particular version that I'm, that I'm reading? What is their background? Because when you say, well, we raise our kids on the Bible, that's fantastic. Whose version of it? What do you mean? Whose, whose scholastic integrity are you trusting to interpret the original languages in order to to give you an understandable version that you can pass on to your kids. Do they have scholastic integrity? Or I'm going to call out a name, which I very rarely do, but I can't help it. Or is it like the Et Sefer and Dr. Stephen, Dr. Stephen Pigeon, who is basically one guy who just decided he was going to translate the Bible? Who is behind, what's the, what's the baggage of the person or the people that are translating God's word and giving it to us so that we can create a construct for our children? Because the truth is you and I have not spent 8, 10, 12 years studying Semitic and Greek, Semitic languages and Greek. If the Bible says this, this is what we got to take it for unless we understand lexicons and all those kinds of things and can work through it. So this, this thing about raising our children, us creating our own lives on the Bible, whenever we're faced with a situation in life, when we're faced with a decision to make or a relationship that's troubling, where are we supposed to turn? We're supposed to turn to the Bible, right? That's, that's great. We're dealing with relationships. We turn to the book of Proverbs, right? Because Proverbs has all the answers. Yeah? Yeah. So one, one verse in Proverbs says, answer a fool in his folly. The very next verse says, don't answer a fool in his folly. So which one's the answer? <laughs> yes. This, this, this book that we have, come here. 
you're bound and determined today for some reason. All right. This, this book that we have, again, is full of beautiful lessons and beautiful stories and, and, and ethics and characters and all. And it takes work to understand it. And then to be able to bring it into our world to create the kind of reality that we think Hashem wants. What is the reality that Hashem wants? What is the reality that Yeshua came to lead us into? He called it the kingdom of heaven. And he, he said it wasn't way out there. By the way, you know that the, the Torah, Moshe says of the Torah, the Torah is not over across the sea, right? It's not up in the heavens where we can't get to it. The Torah is, is close. Yeshua says the same thing about the kingdom. That's not far away. The kingdom is what? At hand. It's close. He also says it's within you. Holy smokes. That is the reality that, that the heart of God wants for his creation and for his people. Kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God here on the earth. What's we'll he sissy? Um, that's the reality well what does that kingdom look like well thankfully we have a book that's full of answers until you actually start reading it I've told you this before and it's just such a a a black and white illustration of kind of the way this works and some of you may 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 relate to this but I came out of a, a, a group of a, a circle of religious you know of, of churches and stuff that everything was hyper spiritual super hyper you know super duper hyper spiritual which means nothing means anything it depends on what you ate last night and how it's messing with your stomach today determines what you're gonna how you're gonna discern this or that or the other and nothing means anything so when I found the, the t- I just wanted to please God my, ever since my youngest recollection, my, my biggest hunger has been like, I just want you to be happy. Which is kind of my personality anyway. I just want people around me to be happy. Whatever needs to happen for that to work, then just be happy. I don't like conflict. I especially don't like conflict with the creator of the universe. Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm hyper non-confrontational when it comes to him. So my attitude in my heart has always been like, you know, Father, I just want to please you. I just want to, I want you to, as I said in worship, I just want you to look down from heaven and be, I want you to go like, there's my boy. Not to say that I'm doing everything right, but man, you're giving it the college try. Way to go. You know, keep on keeping on. And so in those, you know, more spirit-filled, charismatic circles, whatever you want to call them, nothing means anything. You just got to be led by the Spirit. And I believe in being led by Ruach. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, and I'm not criticizing that. But I saw people that were led to go serve at the soup kitchen. And I saw other people that were led to divorce their husband and marry somebody else. Led by the same Spirit. And the church just goes, well, bless you both. You're both okay with God. <laughs> Oh, you got a lot to keep from crying. So when I found the Torah, I thought, finally. God, God loved us so much that he actually gave us a list of stuff that would please him. 
And if we do the things, then God will be, he'll look down from heaven and he'll be pleased. If we just do the things like the Bible says. And so I started trying to do the things and studying the things and, and, and reading about the things. And then I looked over and I wasn't doing the things the same way this person was doing the things. But they said their way was the right way. But my way was working for me okay, I guess. And then I looked at another group and they were doing the things a whole different way. And so I started to wonder like, well, how does God really want us to do these things? And so I studied more and more and more and I, I started learning Hebrew and I started, you know, really studying the, the mitzvot, the commandments. And I realized that there's a lot of commandments out of the 613, which is a rabbinical count, but works for me, called Tariq mitzvot. I, I realized that out of those 613, there's like zero where God gives you super clear definition and instruction for every foreseeable event. And why is that important? Well, because if we love God and we want to please Him, then we want to please Him in everything, in every way, in every circumstance, in every situation, in everything that crops up in our lives. We want to be a whole, complete offering, living offering to Hashem. And if the Bible is the answer book, but it doesn't have all the answers, then is the Bible the answer book? Or is it something else altogether? That's not what today's lesson is about. That one's coming. But, and I'll be honest with you, I, I have really struggled with this series. Um, the last couple of weeks, I did want to talk about the, the Parshiot that we read because there are two of my favorite. But I was really relieved that it was those two Parshas that we had because as I'm studying and I'm working on reading the Bible better, I'm realizing just how bad I do it right now. And I'm your pastor. Welcome. Uh, I'm screwing you all up. It's good. No, um, but I, as I study more and as I read and as I, I wrestle with what this book is and what is God trying to do to us and with us and for us through his word, I realize that it's, there's a really, really good chance that everything I thought the Bible was I have thought it was for 41 years. It's probably not any of those things. And that would be okay if it was Shakespeare. Or if it was number one on Oprah's bestseller list or whatever. I don't know anything about Oprah. It would be okay if it was just a book I ordered from Amazon. That would be okay. Because that's just something I use for distraction and entertainment, but it's not. This is the book that my reality is built upon. And the one that I'm using to, to build my children's reality. And the one that I teach to a group of people to help build their reality. It's a heavy thing. And and I know what some of you might be feeling. Some of you online might be thinking, if you haven't turned me off yet, why, do you, why are you making this so hard? Why are you making this so hard? Just read it for what it says. <laughs> Man, there's so many sacred cows. They're gonna be slain. We, 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 could have, we could have the freezer stocked for years with all the sacred cows we're gonna slay. 
as we work through this, this series. And not to hurt anybody's feelings because they're being slain in my life. And that's why I'm taking my time to prepare these messages and may, there may be breaks in the weeks in between just because I'm struggling with things and I, I want to get it right for you guys and, and for myself. So we have, let's get to the boring stuff <laughs> after, after all that. So we talked a few weeks ago about the, we left off, I want to kind of re- recap where we left off, uh, we, talking about the literary genres in the Bible, right? And, and this is so important because we, we don't, we're not supposed to read different genres the same. And of course, we've used the, the example, it's getting old by now, I'll have to come up with a new one, of a, of a lab report and a comic book, right? You don't read a lab report the same way as you do a comic book. They have different purposes, first of all. They have different purposes. Doctor prints out your, your blood work. Is that blood, is that, report there to entertain you well i hope not it may make you laugh not in the best way the 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 purpose of that document is one thing and you crack open a comic book the purpose for its creation is something different right the the reason it was created the purposes are different not just in how we read them but the reason for which they exist is different is one better than the other it depends on the reason you're looking to them depends on what you're looking for if you're looking for for advice on how to sleep better at night and why you you know why you you snore all the time and why you your your vision is fuzzy and you can't seem to you know to lose that extra few pounds or whatever reading a comic book is probably not going to help you does that make the comic book invaluable? No, but it's, per- it's not its purpose. If you read a comic book and you take medical advice from it and apply it to your life and things start to get kind of haywire and wacky, is it the comic book's problem? No, it's the way you read it. You came to it asking questions that it was not intending to answer. It, had, it wasn't created for that purpose. The language doesn't fit. The storyline doesn't fit. You can make it. You can make it work. You can make it fit. But it's not going to fit. It's going to create more problems and, questions, and, and create more questions than answers. So our Bible is full of different genres. Historical narrative. I can't wait to get to this one. <laughs> we... We're gonna, I'm going to give you a little, I'm going I'm to throw you a little bone here today, later on. But historical narrative, poetry. You show, somebody show me, who's good in here at reading poetry? You feel like you're good at reading poetry. Good, that's what I thought. <laughs> right? Sometimes, well, I mean, songs are poetry, and that's cool. But I mean, like, some poetry you read, and you go like, what the heck? Did I just read? Or I do at least. I don't know. And I'm artsy. <laughs> um, the, but a lot, huge chunks of the Bible are poetry. We've got wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is, well, I personally believe the whole Bible is wisdom literature, but just a microcosm of that is 
is what the, verse, the, the passages we talked about earlier. Quote, uh, you know, answer a fool in his folly, don't answer a fool in his folly. That is the epitome of wisdom literature. What's the answer? The answer is you use wisdom depending on the situation. That's the answer. Which means you have to put in some work. You have to practice. You have to use life experience. You have to use discernment and be led by the Spirit. Um, prophecy. Oh, that's another one I can't wait to get into. Look, y'all are really going to see my baggage even more so than usual as we, go, as we go through these. Because prophecy, look, one of the comments that I've gotten the most pushback on ever. Listen, I've stood, not in this building. Well, did, we, did we do the Genesis series in this building or we start in the old building? We start in the old building. <laughs> I stood in a storefront in downtown Louisiana, Derrida, Louisiana, the most churches per capita of any city in the nation, I stood out in public and actually said Adam and Eve weren't the first human beings. And everybody went, cool. <laughs> not, not, well, I, didn't, I, didn't, I got some, I got a, a few questions, you know, but nobody pushed back. But listen, a few weeks ago when we talked about Isaiah and I said that the Isaiah 53 about the behold the young you know woman will bear child and you'll call his name when I said that could not be about Yeshua yoikes and what was really interesting about that is that I believe it is about Yeshua but it wasn't about Yeshua to Isaiah or to the people he was talking to but the most crit, uh, questions and nobody's being ugly. I don't want you to get that idea. But the criticism and the questions that I'm getting back from that all have to do with how we look at prophecy. Because when it comes down to it and rubber meets the road, the majority of us believe that prophecy is future telling. That the primary goal of a prophet and the gift of prophecy is future telling. And it is not. So I'm, I'm going to really hurt y'all's feelings whenever we get to that. I'm, I'm, ser I'm serious. It's, and it's not going to be fun for me, but hopefully we'll have, be able to have fun together. <laughs> together. Uh, all right. Um, so a lot of the book is prophecy. We know that. Well, if we understand the function and the purpose, remember Lab Report comic book, what is the purpose of prophecy? If we don't understand what the purpose of it is, how do we know how to get out of it what it's trying to give us? How do we know to ask the right questions of it if we don't know what its intent is, right? Um, law. Of course, we know a lot of the book is law. But even law is not necessarily what we think it is. Um, we, get, we get parables in both, in both the Tanakh and the New Testament. Kyle has talked a lot. We've done a lot of work on parables. We'll do a little bit more. Some of these I may condense into one teaching. Uh, I'm not sure yet. Some of them I, I may have Kyle help me on or he may do them. But, uh, but parables, we. Um, here's the thing about parables. Parables are really common in Judaism, especially in around the first century. They became to be really popular in rabbinic styles of teaching. And I've been talking to some friends about Yeshua. And I've come up with a couple of little things that I want to develop. So I'm just going to throw them out there just as a tester. And if, if nobody throws anything at me, I'll, 
I think we'll be okay. We talk about returning Yeshua to his Jewishness, right? Return Yeshua to the first century, return him to his context. Now, whether you believe that Yeshua is a, you know, kosher eating, tefillin wrapping, you know, temple offering, bringing Orthodox Jewish rabbi of the first century, or whether you think he was Jew-ish, those are two different things. Wherever you fall on that, that scale, there is a, a desire in our walk, in our movement, I hate that word movement, uh, but there is a desire amongst those of us who are non-Jews, who are coming back to the Torah, or coming to the Torah, to return Yeshua to his Judaism, whatever we think that looked like in the first century, which is a beautiful thing. But I think while we're doing that, or maybe even before we start to do that, maybe we ought to think about returning God to the Jewish people. Okay, nothing flew, so I'm good. All right. Now, I mean, this is not having to do with, you know, Yeshua's divinity. I'm not, I'm not, that's not the, the scape I'm going into. What I'm saying is that we've talked about this before, the fact that, that Hashem, yud heh vav is is Israel's God. And then when Yeshua brought brought the knowledge of Israel's God to the rest of the world, we just took him from Israel. And we said, oh, he's ours now. He's gonna look and walk and talk and act like 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 we think he should. Yeah, and the Jewish people are like, the heck? So it's good to return Yeshua to his first century roots. But I think before we do that, we gotta give the give God back to the Jews first. And start back at the beginning. And okay. The the second thing I'm I'm starting to develop with some friends is if we really, really because here's the thing, if you're a Hebrew rooter, and the great thing about the not rotor rooter, that's something different. If, if you consider yourself Hebrew roots, and listen, this is the great thing about I, what I believe, I think about our ministry, is that some of you don't even know what that means, and I love that. I think that's great. Because we talked about it before, you look up Hebrew roots movement in, on Google, and it's every weird, freaky, nutty, like, it's just all the weirdness. And we want to, people call us a cult. Yeah, because that's kind of what it looks like. Um, but we, if, if you consider yourselves, you know, in the Hebraic, you're, you're trying to get back to your Hebraic roots in any way, shape, or form. I think it's very admirable, but we say it way too flippantly. Like, oh, well, when we talk to friends and family and we're trying to defend why we keep the Torah or, or trying to argue with them about why they keep, I know nobody in here and nobody watching online because you listen to this ministry and you know that's not productive. But when we are engaged in those conversations, one of the excuses we like to use is, well, Yeshua kept the Torah. Jesus kept the Torah. He upheld the Torah. And we say things really flippantly like that. Not that that's a flippant thing, it's not. But Yeshua keeping the Torah has a lot of implications to it that we don't consider. So, instead of putting Yeshua back in a first century context that we can define for our own motives and purposes, I propose we take Yeshua out of the picture for a moment. 
And let's just take a tour, a deep, let's just live. Let's set up camp in the first century Jewish world. And let's just live there for a couple weeks, a couple months, a year or two. You say, get rid of Yeshua for two years? No, I'm saying, instead of letting what we want to believe about Yeshua define his world, for our, again, for our own purpose so we can defend our walk to our friends and family, let's, let's remove all of that and let's just set it to the side and let's go, what was his world like? And we've done some of this in the, inner, the silent year stuff and the gospel stuff. That was a, a, my first kind of attempt before I really understood what was going on at looking and walking into that world. But the, the world of the Pharisees, of whom I believe Yeshua was a part, the world of the Pharisees, there's, the Talmud tells us there's seven types of Pharisees. And as Hanok said, we know if there's seven different types of Republicans, that's a massive spectrum of beliefs and understandings and ethics and values, right? Shoo-wee. All right. All that off of parables. I'm sorry. Let me move on. Epistles. Epistles are letters, but they're letters we only have one side of. <laughs> so there's some challenges with epistles. We'll talk about that. Myth. There's a lot of myth in your Bible, and we think myth is false. It's not false. It's a particular way of telling a story and, and, and giving a, a moral. Um, Psalms and poetry we might do together. Uh, and then apocalyptic literature. Whew, that's going to be the hardest one. I'm going to need Kyle probably because he's really smart and I'm not. And that one's a really tough one to handle. So let's talk about the makeup of our Bible. I'm going to try to do it in about 45 minutes. And everybody said, ha ha. So let's talk about the makeup of our, our Bible. And I'm, and I'm going to use Christian Old Testament Hopefully you know by now I absolutely hate the term Old Testament and I don't use it except for differentiation like this. Um, so we're going to talk about the, the Christian Old Testament. Generally, if you have a, you look in your Bible, um, you look in the table of contents, you'll find four divisions that your, that your Old Testament is divided into four divisions, okay? Um, this is, now this is, these are Christian translations, Okay? So if you have something like a Stone Tanakh, a Humash, uh, JPS, uh, Jewish Publication Society, if you have anything like that that comes from a Jewish source or a Hebraic source, probably is not going to be divided like this. But your NIVs, your NRSVs, your ESVs, your all, all the ABCDEFGs are all mostly going to be divided like this. So you have law, right? You have history, you have poetry and you have prophets and that's the four main divisions of the Christian Old Testament and it may say a little differently it may be worded a little differently but that's generally accepted for um, four distinctions now there's in, the, in our Christian Old Testament there are 39 books right there are 39 books there are 46 in the Catholic Old Testament so who knows why that's different Apocrypha. Catholicism has the Apocrypha, which we'll talk about um, today if we have time. So we have 39, 39 books in our Christian Old Testament, law, history, poetry, and prophets. Okay? And so we look at, we look at the law. Now the law is in Greek called the Pentateuch 
penta meaning five right the pentateuch and that consists of of course we know this genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy and it is law and let me just say this that i used to really really push back on the church really hard because the church teaches law as law instead of instructions as torah but if you go back and you read Spurgeon and you read some of these, these scholars that happen to be preachers that live just, I don't know, Spurgeon was 80 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever it was. Okay, so before the turn of the century, so a little longer than that. But not, not super long ago. They actually had a way better understanding of law as it pertains to the way that law is instruction and teaching than the church generally teaches today. In the last 150 years, the church has taken a super hard left-hand turn or right-hand turn away from the law as teaching and profitable and towards the law as something that Jesus came to set us free from. Just because you and I grew up in Christianity that that was the banner that we raised, that the law is what Jesus raised us from, that's not, a, that's not an old necessarily understanding. Okay, but in the Christian Old Testament we have the law All right. next we have the history so after the end of Deuteronomy you start of course out with Joshua right and this begins the historical books the historical books Joshua, Judges, Ruth 1st uh, and 2nd Samuel 1st and 2nd Kings 1st and 2nd Chronicles Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther so really take a look at that list and notice what's in the historical books okay now it's called history why because it's history right because it's history or is it alright we're going to talk about that next we have poetry the books that fall in the poetry in, the, in our Christian canon our Christian Old Testament are Job so, so just wait, let's just wait stop how does it how do we read Job differently if Job is placed in the history category versus in the poetry category? <laughs> Welcome to the Bible. How, how would we read Job differently if, it was, if we thought it was part of the history books or part of the poetry books? So if Job is placed in the history, then Job is... you know obviously a historical character that lived in a historical time and a historical place and things factually historically happened to Job right but if Job is poetry see see how much fun this is (laughs) woo alright Psalms which kind of makes sense Proverbs makes sense Ecclesiastes makes sense and Song of Solomon makes sense or Song of Songs um, Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs which is really like we don't read those books like who reads you know who reads those books um, but these are all considered poetry in our, in our these, they, Job is considered poetry in our Christian Bible alright lastly in our four part uh, division in our Christian Bibles we have the prophets right we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations is part of the prophets. 
Why is Lamentations next to Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah is thought to be the author of Lamentations. Uh, they call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. And what is Lamentation? Right? To lament. That's not the scholarly evidence. I'm just making that connection for some of you. <laughs> um, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, and then the minor prophets, right? Not minor because they're less important. Minor just b- meaning they're short. That's all minor means. It just means these, these prophets wrote less than the other guys did. They're called the minor prophets. Uh, Hosea, Yoel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And of course, our Christian Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi, right? Which is a beautiful ending to the end of the Christian Old Testament. Now, I know I throw a lot of shade at Christianity. That's not what this is about today. But the Christian Old Testament has a narrative arc to it. You have the law, which is not really just the law. We know that, right? It's a lot of history. It's a lot of, a lot of historical narrative. There's some poetry. There's some other stuff. But basically, God creates a, a, a perfect world, right? And he puts a couple of people in there, and he says, you know, live, live with me, be perfect. Everything's, you know, everything's good. Everything's kosher. And then humanity screws it up. And in the Christian canon, the humanity is then given a curse, which is the law. And the, the, the narrative arc is that we, humanity based in Israel or, or, or represented by Israel goes through these really troubling times where they just can never get it right. And they fail continuously. And you, have, you, you run through the history books. Right from the law to the history books, and the histories are just this poor, fledgling people that are trying to get it right. And what we know, because we're good New Testament Christians, we know that they'll never get it right because humanity can't really please God. We all know that, but the Israelites back then they didn't know that, so they were still trying their hardest, trying to please God when you really can't because you're a sinful being, right? I said I wasn't throwing shade. I'm throwing a little bit of shade. So we have the history where we just watch Israel struggle and struggle. And one of the reasons why it's so hard for Christians to read through the history is because we carry this theological baggage of like, you're just watching, it's, just, it's like watching your, your favorite pet die. It's like, you know it's not gonna ever work out and you just, you're watching Israel struggle and struggle knowing that the end is not gonna be good. The end can't be good because of our theology. And then we have poetry, which is, we don't really understand poetry. So like, we like the Psalms because we get some songs from that. We like Proverbs because we can really, we can, we can write little books that goes like God's answers for people in pain. We go, great, there's a bunch of Proverbs. Um, but even the Proverbs are like, the Proverbs of whom? Who are we reading that has the answers to all of life? Somebody might pipe up and say, Solomon. But Solomon didn't write all the Psalms. 
Not even hardly. So, but anyway, so we get through the poetry and then we get through the prophets. And what are the prophets doing? The prophets in our Christian canon from the, the, the theological basis that we have, the prophets are telling Israel, I told you guys you'd never make it. I told you you could never please God. You could never do this right. Finally, you're gonna understand. And, the pro- and it's like this big ski jump. Like we're coming up to this big thing where the end of Malachi gives us hope and launches us into this hope that there's one that's coming that will get everything right for you, right? Now, I know I made it sound kind of negative. I'm sorry. Again, I told you you're gonna hear you're gonna really get my baggage through this series, but it is a it is a there is a, a, an on-purpose arc as the way that we understand it. And as, a, and as, a, as a, a, a Christian, it's a beautiful arc for, a, for, a, for a, a Christian believer who understands God a certain way. It's a beautiful arc about how God created something perfect and then we messed it up and then, oh, and we didn't even talk about Satan. He's in there too. He plays a big part. Um, and, and, and our struggle to try to please God and yet the messianic hope. And so I don't want to take that away. But I do find something interesting that we follow Yeshua and how did Yeshua think about his Bible? Do you ever think in terms that Yeshua had a Bible? Well, he didn't have one like we have. Yeah, he had scrolls. But you know that even in Yeshua's day, the Tanakh was not one scroll. It's a collection of scrolls. No. You don't just, you just walk around. Matter of fact, not many synagogues had all the scrolls. You had to rely on your synagogue, you know, 15 miles down the road. Hey, here's a funny thought. What if, what if we only, what if we only had like Leviticus and Deuteronomy? And I'm trying to think, of what's the closest church to us? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Unity, Unity Baptist, New Life. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, Unity's on the other side of town. Yeah. Unity Baptist that's a split off of First Baptist Church named Unity oh my god alright so I love the pastor he's a wonderful guy I love his family I just thought it's, it's anyway he's not the one that named the church so it didn't count okay so New, New Life Baptist what if they have like Genesis and Exodus and somebody wants to study Genesis you know what we have to do? We actually have to be friendly. Enough with them that they would loan us one of their scrolls. <laughs> what if that was the way that the scripture was in the church today? You'd have, you'd have, you'd have people that like, all, they know Deuteronomy like smoking well. Yeah, it'd be experts in Deuteronomy. But because they can't get along with the church down the street, that's all they know. They would, what we would do is we would find other churches that also had Deuteronomy. 
and we would just reinforce what each other knew about Deuteronomy. We would, yeah, we would be Deuteronomists. We would be the, we would be the, the Deuteronomical uh, Church of America. Yeah. The Deuteronomical echo chamber, right? We would be an echo chamber. Hello? Is that not what we have today? I don't get along with y'all, so I'm going to go do my own thing. And listen, I know this is the height of irony, right? <laughs> because I left the church in this same town and started my own ministry. Hello. The irony is not lost on me, all right? I understand. I get it. But mine was a God thing. <laughs> man we're talking about the canon not about all this stuff what are we talking about so anyway but see the beauty of of the 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 way of yeshua's bible that yeshua had a bible he had a tradition he had you know we one a friend of mine named ryan white some of you know have listened to ryan white's teachings but um he he's the one that really kind of helped me think i'd never thought about this before and he made the statement, and I don't remember it, but the two phrases that stuck out were, he was talking about faith in Yeshua, which is what we all get it, right? Faith in Yeshua, right? Foundational, fundamental, the, the beginning and the most important thing of all. But then he said, what about the faith of Yeshua? I was like, hold on a second. Let me, give me a second. I never, I never considered Yeshua believes stuff. <laughs> he believes stuff. Where, where did he get the stuff he believed? Now the gospel tells us that Yeshua grew in stature with God and with man. Growing in stature implies a process right so no matter what we want to debate and could think about yeshua's divinity there is a human side that is very much human there is a lot of humanity in there that had to take on the same process that you and i take on so what did he learn what what is being taught in his world? This is why I, I, I'm really I'm down I'm going down another rabbit hole. I'm sorry, babe, but I, there's be more books coming. The if Yeshua grew up in a world where he his faith his faith was based on teaching on culture on tradition on whatever. What is that culture? What is that tradition? What is that? What I mean. Did they have a thing like you don't put tomato in gumbo? I don't know. Like, did they have a thing like that that's not written down anywhere that you just understood? You, you know what I mean? Like, what what is that? Like, everybody, it's become a meme lately. But like, before it came a Facebook meme, everybody knows that like, only Yankees put tomatoes in gumbo. Like, that's a sure sign that you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, is there, is there, what kind of things are there like that in Yeshua's context? That, that, that maybe were never written down. Like, because all these things, all these things are a part of what he believed. Whew, man, that's super, super, super heavy. So what does his Bible look like? Let's just start there because that's something we can know for sure, right? So a couple passages, Luke 24, 44. 
Um, this is at the end of Luke, where Yeshua is coming by, and he's like, hey, um, what's the big deal about, what do you guys think about all that went on this weekend? And they were like, oh, that like a dead guy came back to life? Like, what, you know, pick one. What, what do you mean, the things? So he says, um, then he said to them, um, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, everything written in me concerning the Torah of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So, let's think about this critically for a second. If you grew up, like most of us did, with a four-part Old Testament structure, how do you reconcile Yeshua saying, the whole thing's about me, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms? How do we reconcile that? What do we do do about the stuff that he didn't mention? Well, it's not... Well, he was just giving like the highlight reel. I don't know how, how do we, you know what I mean? How do we put that together? So then, if 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 there's a part of our Christian, our Christian Old Testament canon and the way it's divided that Yeshua doesn't mention, does that mean that he's maybe like downplaying that part, like it really wasn't important? You understand how this can shape understandings, right? So there's parts parts of the. Yeshua goes, well, the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the, then for a Christian, then, then that means we can take out what? We can take out the history. Because that, I mean, it's, it can be some good preaching, but it's not like foundational for, you understand what I mean? There's, a, there's kind of a mismatch. So Yeshua mentions a three-part structure of his Bible. Um, in the second temple period, we talked about the Apocrypha, right, which the Catholics have. I love the Catholics because they have the Apocrypha. It's awesome. They have this book called The Wisdom of Ben Sirah. The Wisdom of Ben Sirah um, is wisdom literature, just like it says. But Ben Sirah was a guy whose first name was Yeshua. Yeshua Ben Sirah. <laughs> and he wrote this book, The Wisdom of Ben Sirah. Ben Sirah's grandson penned an introduction or a prologue to his book to introduce it and it says this many great teachings have been given to us through the law the prophets and the other writings that follow them so my grandfather Yeshua Ben Sirah devoted himself especially to the reading of the law the prophets and the other books of our ancestors so what do we have there what, what fits with Yeshua's description we have law and prophets Yeshua has Psalms Ben Sirah has other books but still you see this three part structure right um, one of the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and it, it's way it's super complicated but I, just, I read this from an excerpt from another from a scholar one of the Dead Sea Scrolls makes a reference to the, the whole of the Hebrew Bible and he calls them the scrolls of Moses the words of the prophets and the words of David David King David so you have the scrolls of Moses that fits you have the words of the prophets that fits and then the, the words of David so we have Yeshua saying Psalms we have Ben Sirah who is probably a little after Yeshua of Nazareth early second century. early second century yeah quite a bit and then you have the the former priests who were in Qumran the Essenes probably saying the words of David 
So, see, it's interesting. It's three, but there's three parts. So, most of you guys will know this, but this is just for anybody who doesn't. So, the Yeshua's Bible is called in Hebrew the what? Tanakh, right? So, this is good review for anybody who knows this. Good information for anybody who doesn't. The Tanakh. So, if you have an Art Scroll Stone Edition Tanakh, if you have a Humash, if you have a uh, ISR JPS, uh, I think most of those will cl- will do it like this. Uh, Tanakh is an acronym, of course. Torah, Nevaim, and Ketuvim. Torah being teaching or instructions. The Nevaim being the prophets, and the Ketuvim being the other writings. Okay. So, this there are either 17 or 24 books in the Hebrew Tanakh depending on how they're counted so, so think about this is just a nerdy, little nerdy interesting fact so 17 or 24 depending on how they're counted well how do you have two different numbers well because in the Hebrew prophets or in the Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew canon Samuel, Kings, Chronicles and Nehemiah and Ezra are not one and two there's not first and second kings first and second samuel they're one book kings is one samuel's one nehemiah ezra is one book together chronicles is one book together okay so you have either 17 or 24 uh, in some of the more modern hebraic translations they will divide it first and second samuel first and second kings my stone tanakh is like that uh is divided up like that so either 17 or 24 um and then how many books of the Christian Old Testament did we say there were? Do you remember? Who wrote it down? Who's a good note taker and wrote it down? 36, 39, 36. I don't, it's in my notes. I remember. But I'm not going back. Anyway. So, but wait. So we have, thir- how, many, how many is it? Like 39. That's what I thought. Thank you. Um, 39 in our Christian Old Testament. But let's say at the most, only 24 in the Hebrew. But wait, we, all, we have the same books. So what's the what's the difference in the hebrew canon what we call the minor prophets were considered one scroll all the minor prophets are considered one scroll so when you're talking about the prophets you have isaiah well we'll get to it but isaiah jeremiah ezekiel all on their own scrolls and then all of the prophets the rest of the prophets on one scroll itself so you get that differentiation okay so let's move on we got 15 minutes um, so, of course, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Of course, I highly encourage everyone to learn the Hebrew, right? Bereshit, beginnings. Uh, Exodus is Shemot, which doesn't mean Exodus. Shemot means what? Names. Some of you are like, wait, what? <laughs> First time hearing that. It means names. The book of Exodus that we call Exodus is really a book of names. Ooh. There's a bunch of names in it, including one really important one that we hear for the first time in the book of Shemot, yod Hevavhe, right? Um, Leviticus is Vaikra, uh, which is, Vaikra means, um, yeah, and he called. So I love when I'm teaching through Vaikra, Leviticus, what, is the, what does the word Leviticus mean? Well, it has something to do with, Le- there's a Levi in there, I guess it has something to do with Levi. And you know what? That means they worked in the temple, and we're not Levites, and we don't have a temple, but we are the temple. Doesn't make any sense. So I'm not even going to worry about reading that book. But the, the Hebrew of Vaikra, the name of Leviticus, means, and he called. Well, heck, man. I hear Christians all the time saying, God called me this, and God called me to do that, and God called me to do this, and led me this, and called me this, and I hope God calls me, and I wish God would call me, and if I get a call from the Lord, and call, 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 call. If there's any book in the Bible 
that Christians should want to read based on what we say, it should be, and he called. Should be Vayikra. All right. First book taught to Jewish children, Vayikra. Christianity, never reads it. All right. Next is Numbers, which Numbers just sounds like a captivating title, doesn't it? I just can't wait to read about Numbers. In the Hebrew, it's Bamidbar, which means what? In the wilderness. That's a little catchier. I could read about some people, you know, struggling to survive in the wilderness. See? And then Deuteronomy. Well, that's... Deuteronomy is obviously a very common English usage, right? Especially in Borgore and Vernon Parish, uh, St. Landry Parish. I heard all the time growing up, right? Cajuns always use the word Deuteronomy. Nobody knows what that means, right? Um, in English, Deuto or Greek, Deuteronomy or Latin, I guess it is, right? Is it Greek? Um, it means second law. But in Hebrew, it's Devarim, which is words, right? So I encourage you to learn the Hebrew of all of these because it, it gives it a different, a different understanding, expands your understanding a little bit. So the, the majority of the Tanakh is story. It's historical narrative, which we'll talk about. The next highest majority are laws, right? Um, and then the third is poetry. So the Torah is made up primarily of historical narrative, but it's also laws and poetry. Those are kind of the three big chunks of, of the Torah. Next we have Nevaim. Now, I know this is a lot to take in, but if you're still sitting there with your, your Bible and you have like NIV or something like that, and you're looking at your table of contents, hint, hint. Um, look, at, look at what is placed in the Hebrew order in the prophets. What do you find interesting about that? Yeah, look, Joshua's in the prophets, the book of Judges, Samuel and Kings, right, are in the prophets. Hmm. Interesting, right? So they're considered in the Jewish tradition prophets instead of history. Not to say that there's not, the Jewish people don't understand it as history, but in Jewish thought, the Bible is, the, the Hebrew Bible is the product of the prophets. They get their scrolls, their, they get their canon, their Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, comes by way of the prophets seeing and noticing and communicating to Israel and telling the story of Israel's past, its present, and giving hope for Israel's future. So for, for the Jewish person, the entire Tanakh is prophetic. But notice what I said prophecy is. Retelling the story of the past, telling about where we are today, and then telling where we could be heading in the future. There's something else interesting about the, prof, uh, the history books, what we call the history books being in the prophets. The Jewish canon, the Tanakh, the Hebrew canon, doesn't have a history section. They know it's history, it's their history, but it's not thought of as history. Of course, it's thought of as prophecy. So I want, to, I want you to check out a couple of, uh, of, uh, of passages. 
you've read these and you've done what I've done and everybody else has done and went like, well, what are they talking about? This is just something for you to think about. When thinking about, well, are they prophets or are they history? First Kings 14.29. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Some translations will have the annals of the king. The kings, right? This is not the book of chronicles. This is something different. This is a whole nother collection of writings. So, so watch. If we're reading the book of First Kings, you and I are reading, right? We're good readers, or hopefully good readers. We're good English readers. We're reading First Kings. We're going like, oh my gosh, how could all this stuff really actually have happened? Like, and we're trying to put our minds around it, and we're trying to understand it. And then we read this passage, and it says, now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And we're like, what you talking about, Willis? Well, my point is, is that although kings, there's another, there's another one just to prove my point. First Kings, I'm probably not prove it, but just to make me feel better. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the, yeah. So it says, now the acts of Rehoboam and all they did, are they not written in the books of the kings? I might have copied that wrong, pasted that wrong. Anyway, my point is, one of them's about Rehoboam and one of them's about uh, Boat, Bashar. Yeah, right, okay. But the same idea. Like, you want to know more about this guy, you go to this book. So if you and I are reading 1 Kings as a, an accurate, historical, blow-by-blow, minute-by-minute account of what's going on on the ground, and we're told by the writer of that book, if you want to know what really happened, go look at this other book. then what is he telling us? I'm not telling you. What is he telling us about what he's writing? Okay, it's a synopsis, right? What else? Somebody else has another interpretation? Maybe so. What about maybe the fact that, or maybe the idea, I'm not going to say the fact, what about the possibility that this collection called the Annals of the Kings or the Chronicles of the Kings, that collection is intended to be a moment by moment detailed historical accurate account and what King's Samuel Chronicles is doing is although it's historical it's not intended to be the purpose is not for telling historical facts and giving a timeline and giving names and numbers and dates and all that there's a book there's a collection of books for that it's called the Annals of the Kings. This is not that. So remember Lab Report comic book? The, the purpose it's created for, the intended purpose is different, right? Doesn't mean it's wrong or bad or the other. It's it, what is it intended for? What is the purpose that it's intended for? So what we have are scriptures that are obviously not intended to be the blow-by-blow account. He's drawing from the historical annals to create a prophetic work. And remember, prophetic is not primarily about future telling. Prophetic is about here and now. Namely, a work that looks at, the, at Israel's stories from the divine point of view in order to generate wisdom 
to teach wisdom to God's people and to sustain hope for the future. And that hope for the future is all about the coming kingdom of God and the messianic king, especially reading it in this order. Does that make sense? All right, let's move on because I want to finish up. Next, we have the, uh, let's see, we have the Nevi'im. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. No, 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 let's, I got one more on Nevi'im. Uh, Nevi'im. Uh, so we looked at Nevi'im, right? We got the list. How many major prophets are in the Nevi'im? Three, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. How many minor prophets are they? Are there? All of them. <laughs> Y'all are slackers. There's 12. 12 minor prophets. 3 and 12. 3 and 12. 3 and 12. 3 and 12. Where have we heard 3 and 12 before? 3 and 12. Sounds familiar. 3 and 12. Anybody? Come on, think Genesis. Think Genesis. 3 and 12. 3 and 12. This is super easy. Come on, somebody's got to get this. <laughs> 3 and 12. How many uh, How many patriarchs are there? 3. And how many tribes, sons of Israel are there? Oh. Wee. All right. So these pro- in these prophets um, are they're describing listen how the synopsis goes. This is from Dr. Tim Mackey. They develop the hope for God's kingdom, the day of the Lord for the coming Messiah, and Israel returning to its land so that the blessing of Abraham can come to all the nations. Three patriarchs, 12 tribes. The prophets are giving the hope that all of the tribes will come back to the land so that they can honor the promise of Father Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. I love people that are smarter than me. It's great. All right, the last set of, of uh, divisions is the Ketuvim. Um, uh, that's not the right books. Do I not have the right slide? I was copy and pasting at like one o'clock this morning. So forgive me if these are not right. So in the Ketuvim, you have Psalms, Proverbs, Job, all the other writings. Go Google it. All right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it's messed up, but that's my fault. Um, the, the thing about the, the other writings is that there's no consistent thread necessarily that ties them together. Somebody says like, they're kind of like the junk drawer of the, of the, the, the Hebrew canon, um, but they're, 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 they're other, other writings. Um, there's no really consistent thing that ties them together except most, uh, most all of, the vast majority of them start with, pro, with Psalms and end with Chronicles, Right? They end with Chronicles. Here's what's really interesting about that. Because where does our canon end? Our Old Testament canon end? Malachi, right? Malachi. But in the Hebrew Bible, Psalms to Chronicles. Chronicles is not considered history or prophecy. It's considered the writings, which is a whole interesting concept. So this is Luke chapter 11, verse uh, 50 and 51. This is Yeshua speaking, and he says, So that the blood of the prophets shed since the foundation of the world might be required from this generation, from the blood of Abel. The blood of the who should be shed? 
Say it again. Who's the first prophet Yeshua speaks of? <laughs> what? See what happens when you start reading your Bible closely? What? Abel was a prophet? Well, apparently, according to the growing up that Yeshua did, somewhere in the Bible of Yeshua or the faith of Yeshua, there's some stories about Abel being a prophet. What work do we have today that might shed some light on that? Have you heard of the Midrash? The Midrash tells all these incredible stories about Abraham being thrown into a fiery furnace. Wait, Joe, no, you mean Daniel. No, I mean Abraham thrown into a fiery furnace. What? Midrash is unreal. Well, the Jews added the Midrash, and we don't read it because it's the Jews, the rabbis. You know what the Midrash maybe talks about Abel being a prophet and apparently Yeshua read it too because here he talks about the blood of the prophets being shed from the foundation of the world beginning with the prophet Abel from the prophet Abel to the blood of Zechariah the one who perished between the altar and the house of God yes I tell you it would be required of this generation who is this Zechariah guy He's a prophet that gets slain in the temple at the end of Chronicles. So when Yeshua thinks about the timeline of history, his understanding created by his Bible is from Genesis to Chronicles. Right? But here's the most fascinating thing about this. Yeshua's Bible, as we mentioned already, is not a book. It's in scrolls. And there's various scrolls. And now, mostly one book per scroll, except for the prophets, right? But we read earlier about this guy named Ben Sirah. He was early second century. Yeshua, who was obviously first century. The Essenes, who were before and after that time. You have Philo of Alexandria, who is a Jewish philosopher that's trying to get an audience in, in the Greek world. And so Philo is constantly talking about his Bible and he always refers to it in this three-part structure. So you got, you, got a, 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 you got a Jew down in Alexandria, you got Yeshua, you got Ben Sirah 200 years after Yeshua, you got the Essenes out in the desert, they don't like anybody. All these different Jewish people over this large uh, area of time and space all refer to their Bible, which they don't have, <laughs> in a three-part system. Does that make sense? Somehow they understood that these five scrolls from Bereshit to Deuteronomy, from Dever Bereshit to Devarim, go together. And somehow these Yeshiahu, Yermiahu, Yehezkel, and all the minor prophets, they all go together. And then they knew what the other writings were. Yeshua called it the Psalms. Ben Sirah called it uh, the other works, or, uh, Yeshua, uh, Ben Sirah's grandson. Um, the the, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls calls them the words of David. In their collective, they understood what this was. Isn't that phenomenal? I mean, we split churches because we can't agree on what color to put carpet, right? 
We can't agree on the new color of the carpet. People leave split churches because they don't like the way the thermostat's set. You know what? If you don't like the way the thermostat's set, it's right there. Go change it. I don't care. And if some... And if, and if somebody has a disagreement about it, if you have a disagreement about it with somebody, wait until Oneg will make Kiddush and then drink a bunch of wine together. I promise the setting on the thermostat will not matter. It's the problem we had in the Baptist church. We had a bunch of food. We didn't have any liquor. So we argued about dumb stuff like the color of the cushions on the pews and the... See, I told you I was going to try to make this fun. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I do have some stuff on the New Testament. Give me like two minutes. It'll literally take that long, right? So the New Testament is not this easy. Actually, the New Testament in a lot of ways is harder to date and put together than the Tanakh. One of the, and Kyle and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. One of the interesting things about the Tanakh is you have a couple different things at play. You have... What is the date of the setting of the book, right? So, the book of Exodus, Shemot, what is the setting? The setting is the Exodus from Egypt, which we can kind of sort of date. But not really. But anyway, it's a whole discussion. You have the setting. When does the author want you to think this is happening, right? Or when is it happening? But then you have the date of the writing of it. Now we know there was no stenographer. Well, I hope we all know. If we don't, you're about to find out. It's like, like there's no Santa Claus. We're just going to rip the Band-Aid off. There's no stenographer finding, following Moses around. There's, like Joshua's not walking around with an iPad and, a, and an Apple pen going like, could you say that? Slow down, I can't. That didn't exist. So the, the book of Exodus happens in a time, but it's not written until later. So that makes things hard, right? To... to in the New Testament, we have equally difficult issues with dating and stuff like that. So we have the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, the Epistles, and the Apocalypse. Two things I want to comment on. Uh, so Gospels, of course, we know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Kyle and I have done a ton of stuff on that. Go back and listen to those. Next is the Acts of the Apostles, obviously is the book of Acts, um, which is an important transitionary book because it tells about the apostles after Yeshua. Next is the Epistles. Okay, look, all the Epistles, right? From Romans to Jude. Not Kyle. Who can tell me why the epistles are ordered in our New Testament the way they are? Does anybody know? Does anybody know? See, not to make anybody feel ashamed, but how many of you have grown up in church most of your life? How many of you know the New Testament song? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and the letters to the Romans. Right? That's right. Wow, the end. That's right. Michael's getting excited. Hallelujah. I felt, I felt that. Why don't we know how these letters are organized? Because it's important. It's important. Why do we think? Okay, by his trips. Okay, that's good. So if you do by his trips, then you have a certain picture in your head of what Paul's doing, and you have a certain understanding of why Paul might be saying what he's saying, right? So that's one option. Why else? Ah, the answer is the length of the book. That is a good guess. Very good. Romans is the longest letter that, write Paul, uh, that, that Paul writes. Letters. Remember, letters. Letters take what? Two directions. We only have one. Okay? But Romans is the longest one. It's at the front. 
but it's dated to be probably Paul's last letter, maybe the last or one of the last. At any rate, it's the most complete evolution of Paul's theology in the letter to the Romans. All right, and they get shorter and shorter as you go down to poor little Jude, right? He's a minor epistle, <laughs> but, but an incredible letter, right? That's right, that's right. So, the, so I want you to understand that there's not a lot of theology to the way that the letters are ordered in the New Testament. They're just long to short. And in fact, as we progress through the New Testament, we might have thought, or this might be how, or this is how I thought about it, like Romans, it's the first book, so it's kind of the elementary one. And then as I go through, Paul is going to increasingly add, like, there's going to be, he's going to develop his themes more and more as we go through, because that's just how you read a book. Nay, nay. In the New Testament, you get everything. You get the culmination of Paul's life and work in the book of Romans. And then everything is kind of spit spot from there, all right? So I just wanted to say that because I thought it was really interesting. Um, And then lastly is Revelation, which is called Apocalypse. Apocalypse. Um, uh, We did Acts. Acts of the Apostles. It was just one, just the book of Acts. Um, So, Revelation and Apocalypse. What does the word Apocalypse mean? Revealing. Thank God nobody said end of the world. My goodness. That's not what the apocalypse doesn't mean end. It means revealing. Yeah, uncovered. Yeah, right. So here's the thing about the the book of Revelation. The majority of the apocrypha is apocalyptic. The majority of the apocrypha, right, so you've got stuff you got in there like you got one and two Maccabees, you got Jubilees, you got the book of Jasher, you got, uh, you know, Ben Sirah, all, all the things. The majority of them are p- apocalyptic, which is a whole genre that we're going to look at. And it was a really hot writing style at the time of Yeshua and, and thereafter the time of John. It was like the way. It was like apocalyptic literature to them was kind of like memes are to us. Like nobody reads a book anymore. You go on Facebook and you find memes, right? Or memes. <laughs> when, they, when memes started to be a thing, you realize we've, we've witnessed the invention of a word. You remember when you started seeing the word meme, you thought like, what is that, mem, meme, me, and then, right, kind of like gif, gif or gif, g-i-f, anyway. The memes now, memes today are how, are the most popular way of transmitting information in our, in our time. It just is. In the same way, apocalyptic writing style was the most popular way of transmitting information in the first and second century. So the book of Revelation is not the only one of its kind. It's amongst a whole collection of Jewish writings in this time period. Now, it's the only one that says things exactly the way it says, but the style of writing is of its time period. What are some other books that are apocalyptic? The book of Ezekiel is apocalyptic. Which again, you don't read that the same way you read other stuff because you get in a lot of trouble, which we have seen because it's born fruit. Uh, in a, Daniel is apocalyptic, absolutely, that's right. Um, which again, whew, we can start tearing some of this stuff apart. It should be challenging, it should be good. And it should 
change our theology. And when I say change our theology, I know it makes a lot of people nervous. What I want you to understand is that if your theology is not changing, it is dying. If you see the world and God and the way things work together the same way you do now as when you were 13 or 14 or 27 and you're in your 40s, 50s or 60s now, that the, you better reach over and smell that theology because it's probably, it probably stinketh by now. A changing theology is one that is wrestling, wrestling with a changing world and going, how does God stay relevant? How does the message of God stay relevant in a changing world? 